It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Two moms looking for inspiration wherever wherever we we can can find it. it. Happy February to everybody. We're going to be mixing it up a little bit on this episode and ditching the regular format. I'm going to do two longer stories rather than two shorts and one long. In this episode, number 116, I'm going to talk about some female war heroes and the first black Supreme Court justice, Thurgood Marshall, hitting some history for inspiration. So excited to have you listening. It's February. And for those of us in the United States, that means Black History Month. Celebrating the history and contributions of Black Americans is particularly important right now, as some Americans are aggressively trying to stifle learning about our damning past, the struggles for equality, and the continued fight to be treated fairly. Many of our first episodes were about amazing Black Americans who made or were making a difference in our country, and we want to continue that celebration by including segments on Black history throughout February. The judiciary is one of the three branches of government and probably the one people know the least about, particularly the head of the branch, the U.S. Supreme Court. And while there's been a lot of news coverage about the Supreme Court in the last few years, little of it has been good. Faith in the Supreme Court is at an all-time low, but that hasn't always been the case. In different periods of history, the Supreme Court has been viewed as protecting important civil liberties, and one of the staunchest protectors of civil rights in the Supreme Court was Associate Justice Thurgood Marshall. Justice Marshall was also the first African American to sit on the Supreme Court. His journey to the court is an interesting and impactful story. Thurgood Marshall was born on July 2, 1908, in Baltimore, Maryland. His mother, Norma, was a schoolteacher. His father, William, held various jobs as a waiter in clubs, hotels, and on rail cars. Thurgood was described as being a boisterous child who often got in trouble. His father, William, was interested in law, and he followed legal cases, sometimes even going to court to watch the proceedings. Thurgood sometimes went with his father to watch court proceedings. Although his father never told Thurgood that he should be a lawyer, he taught Thurgood how to reason and argue. His father would challenge Thurgood's statements and make him defend them. Thurgood said of his father, He taught me how to argue, challenged my logic on every point by making me prove every statement I made, even if we were just discussing the weather. Thurgood graduated from the Colored High and Training School in Baltimore in 1925 with honors. He then enrolled in the oldest college for African Americans in the United States, Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. There, he earned good grades and was a star on the college debate team. While still a student at Lincoln, he married Vivian Buster Beret. He again graduated with honors with a degree in American Literature and Philosophy. At this time, law schools were still segregated, so Thurgood went to Howard University School of Law in Washington, D.C. There, he was mentored by Charles Hamilton Houston, who was instrumental in dismantling the Jim Crow laws in the South that forced racial segregation in almost all aspects of life and limited voting rights for blacks. Houston taught his students about social engineering and how they could use the law to fight for civil rights. After he graduated, he started a law practice in Baltimore, but never made much money because he was busy fighting to benefit the black community. He volunteered for the NAACP and took on a case where a black student was denied entry to the University of Maryland's law school on the grounds that he was black. 
Thurgood won the case, arguing that denying the student an equal opportunity to go to law school and only accepting white students violated the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The case was never appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, so the ruling was limited to Maryland only, but it helped set his sights on a national victory. Marshall took a position as a special counsel for the NAACP and began litigating more and more discrimination cases, including arguing cases before the Supreme Court. The national attention of these cases also led to increased donations for the NAACP. Thurgood argued cases about unequal pay for black workers and other civil rights cases. Of the 32 civil rights cases Thurgood Marshall argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, he won 29 of them, which is absolutely an amazing record. Thurgood helped overturn the practice of white primaries, where only white people were allowed to vote in election primaries, prevent segregation on interstate buses, and helped end racially restricted covenants that prevented black people from moving into certain neighborhoods. Thurgood continued to file cases against segregated education, arguing that the separate but equal doctrine that it allowed separate schools for blacks and whites did not treat students equally under the Equal Protection Clause of the United States. Black schools had significantly less funding and were often in poor repair, and the lack of funding created fewer learning opportunities for black students. He used education experts to testify about the large discrepancy between black and white schools. Eventually, Thurgood Marshall argued the case Brown versus the Board of Education before the Supreme Court. This landmark case was decided in favor of Thurgood's client, with the Supreme Court holding that Topeka, Kansas School Board violated a black student's civil rights by requiring her to ride a bus further away to a black elementary school instead of letting her attend the school right near her home. On May 17, 1954, Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren handed down the Supreme Court's unanimous decision that, in the field of education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. The Supreme Court ordered that nationwide school districts would have to unsegregate all schools with all deliberate speed. As expected, this meant a lot of resistance in the South. Thurgood even had to go back to the Supreme Court to get the court to enforce the school board of Little Rock, Arkansas, to enforce the Brown decision. In 1955, Thurgood's wife, Vivian, died from cancer. A year later, he would marry Celia Suyet a secretary at the NAACP who he called Sissy. They'd have two kids together, Thurgood Jr. and John. Thurgood Jr. became a lawyer and worked for the Clinton administration, and John directed the U.S. Marshals Service. In 1960, Thurgood Marshall accepted an invitation from Kenya to come and help draft their constitution and is considered a revered figure in Kenya history. In 1961, Marshall was nominated by President John F. Kennedy to the U.S. Court of Appeals for New York, Vermont, and Connecticut. Southern senators held up the appointment for eight months before he could be approved by the Senate. During his time at the U.S. Court of Appeals judge, Thurgood argued 98 majority opinions, none of which were reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court, which is another amazing accomplishment. His rulings were most often protective of civil rights and equal justice. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson nominated Thurgood to the position of Solicitor General, who's the attorney that argues cases before the Supreme Court on behalf of the government of the United States. 
As Solicitor General, he won 14 out of the 19 cases he argued before the Supreme Court. One of the cases he won was upholding the constitutionality of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which prohibited racial discrimination in voting. In 1967, when a vacancy opened up on the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall was nominated by President Johnson. President Johnson was quoted as saying about the nomination, It was as easy as it was obvious. President Johnson knew that Thurgood Marshall was the right man for the job, and it was time to finally have a person of color on the Supreme Court. Again, there was resistance from Southern senators, but the nomination was popular nationwide. On October 2, 1967, Thurgood Marshall was sworn in as the first black associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, where he would serve for the next 24 years. The Supreme Court was headed by Chief Justice Earl Warren, and the makeup of the court was considered to be liberal-leaning, which suited Thurgood just fine. However, after President Nixon was elected, the Supreme Court shifted to the right, becoming more conservative. Marshall often found himself in the minority with his friend and fellow justice, William Brennan. The two of them wrote many dissents, arguing against the more conservative majority. In his dissenting opinions, Thurgood emphasized individual rights, fundamental fairness, equal opportunity, and equal protection under the law. He disagreed that the Constitution should be interpreted in light of what the Founding Fathers thought and saw the Constitution as a document that should change with the times. After all, if they had stayed with the original intent of the Founders, blacks would still be slaves and both women and blacks would not be able to vote. In a speech Thurgood Marshall made in celebration of the Bicentennial of the Constitution, he said, We the people no longer enslave, but the credit does not go to the framers. It belongs to those who refused to acquiesce in outdated notions of liberty, justice, and equality, and who strive to better them. I plan to celebrate the Bicentennial of the Constitution as a living document, including the Bill of Rights and other amendments protecting individual freedoms and human rights. Justice Marshall continued to argue for the expansion of civil rights and equal treatment under the law. And while many of his arguments made in the dissenting opinions were not adopted by the Supreme Court, many state courts and legislative bodies adopted his theories on civil rights and equal protection. Marshall also pushed for reform in police actions, particularly in the area of the Fourth Amendment, protecting against unreasonable search and seizure and police brutality. He also argued that criminal defendants should be entitled to effective representation, which disproportionately affected black defendants. He also was opposed to the death penalty, arguing that it was morally unacceptable and that it was imposed much more frequently on the poor and minorities. He was a staunch defender of the First Amendment. He argued against obscenity laws, stating that if the First Amendment means anything, it means that a state has no business telling a man sitting alone in his home what books he may read or what films he may watch. He supported the rights of union picketers to picket on land open to the public and the rights of protesters to speak their minds and engage in protected symbolic protests. He argued that while the Constitution does contain an explicit right to privacy, the Bill of Rights infers one. Justice Marshall was also one of the first and most ardent supporters of a woman's right to choose in the Supreme Court. He was one of the votes in favor of the decision in Roe v. Wade that protected the right of a woman to choose, which lasted from 1973 to 2022. During his time on the Supreme Court, Justice Thurgood Marshall participated in 3,400 cases and wrote 322 majority opinions. Justice Marshall liked to joke that he was appointed for life and I intend to serve it.
However, due to his increasingly poor health and the retirement of his friend and colleague, William Brennan, he decided to retire in 1991. Marshall was replaced by Clarence Thomas, another black justice, but the polar opposite of Marshall politically. Marshall won a number of awards for his years of service and his fight for civil rights. Thurgood Marshall died in 1993 from heart failure. More than 4,000 people showed up for his funeral, and his body lay in state at the Great Hall of the Supreme Court. Marshall has been called by legal experts as probably the most important American lawyer of the 20th century. He's been said to have transformed constitutional law and opened new facets of citizenship to black Americans. Robert Smith, a prominent political scientist and professor at the San Francisco State University, described Marshall as one of the greatest leaders in the history of the African-American struggle for freedom and equality. President Bill Clinton posthumously gave Thurgood Marshall the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Several films have been made about his life. The most recent is a 2017 film, Marshall, starring Chadwick Boseman. That's definitely going on my list. I still don't know much about most Supreme Court justices, but I'm glad to have learned about Thurgood Marshall. His fight for equal treatment for all people is one that all of us should take up. Racism separates, but it never liberates. Hatred generates fear, and fear, once given a foothold, binds, consumes, and imprisons. Nothing is gained from prejudice. No one benefits from racism. Thurgood Marshall. For Christmas, my son gave me a book by Elena Favilli and Francesca Cavallio called Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. Though the book is intended for a younger audience, my kiddo knows me well. They're short pieces with vibrant illustrations, and they're just perfect for this mom who sometimes struggles staying focused. Each page is devoted to one heroine, so it gives you just enough information to hook you and make you want more. Even more than just the short but concise biographies, I so loved the subject matter. Rebel Girls. The book is filled with women who didn't just abide by outdated, misogynistic rules, but stayed true to themselves. They each impacted the world in their own unique ways, and this book reminds us how grateful we should be to these trailblazers. Going through the book, I found we had already discussed a pretty respectable number of the women they included, like Irina Sendler, the World War II war hero, who risked her life to save countless children. Jane Goodall, the famous primatologist and humanitarian. Julia Child, the chef, Maya Angelou, the writer, Wilma Rudolph, the woman who was told she would never walk again and proved them wrong, representing the United States in the Olympics, Simone Biles, the gymnast, Wangari Mathai, the activist from Africa who was an environmentalist long before it was really even a thing. She understood the importance of dirt and trees and protecting land in order to have a livelihood and just a healthy life. And finally, Yusra Mardini, the refugee swimmer. There's a movie, I also need to put this on my list, on Netflix now called The Swimmer that tells her story. That list is far from complete with all the ladies they discuss in the book. For this episode, I'm just going to talk about three women who were war heroes in their own way and on their own terms. One from the U.S. Civil War and two from World War II. Goodnight Rebel Girls didn't have any ladies from World War I, which I thought was interesting. Gonna have to. I know they have some more books, so I'll have to find one for another episode. Mary Edwards Walker was the first female U.S. Army surgeon during the Civil War. 
Claudia Rugurini was a self-proclaimed nerd who joined a group of university students secretly fighting Mussolini's fascist reign in Italy. And finally, I'm going to chat a little bit about Nancy Wake, a member of the French Resistance, and then the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, during World War II. So Mary Edwards Walker was born November 26, 1832 in Oswego, New York. Her parents, abolitionists, Alva and Vesta Walker encouraged progressive ideals with their children, dividing domestic chores equally, and they offered shelter for freedom seekers on the Underground Railroad. Alva and Vesta also encouraged their five daughters to get an education, which was frowned upon at the time because they were girls. But education was so important to their family, the Walkers started the first free school in Oswego so their daughters could receive an education equal to their son. They were a th- free-thinking Christian family, and for this reason, they allowed Mary to wear bloomer pants instead of the customary skirt and corset of the time. After graduation, Mary became a teacher for a time in Minetto, New York, saving money to go to medical school. In 1855, she received her medical degree from Syracuse Medical College, the second woman to graduate after Elizabeth Blackwell, who was actually the first female doctor. November 16, 1855, Walker married another medical student. Albert Miller, and they opened up a medical practice together in Rome, New York. No one wanted or trusted a female doctor, and the business failed. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Walker tried to join the Union, but was rejected because she was a female. At the time, women were only allowed to practice as nurses, so she decided to serve as an unpaid volunteer surgeon at the U.S. Patent Hospital in Washington. In 1862, Walker moved to Virginia and began treating soldiers near the front lines. She also requested to become a spy, but once again was rejected. In 1863, she was finally accepted to serve in the U.S. Army, becoming a contract acting assistant surgeon for civilians in Ohio. Walker often crossed battle lines to care for soldiers and civilians. In April of 1864, she had just finished helping a Confederate doctor with a surgery when she was captured by Confederate troops as a spy. She remained a prisoner of war, and during that time, she refused to wear the women's clothing they provided. She felt the men's clothes were more comfortable and hygienic. She thought the layers of dresses just collected dirt and transferred particles around. In August of 1864, she was released from prison and became an assistant surgeon of the Ohio 52nd Infantry. After the war, she was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Andrew Johnson, but it was taken away in 1916, as were many at the time. When the government reviewed awards and they decided they didn't meet requirements, they actually took away medals. That didn't stop her from wearing it, and later, Jimmy Carter legally restored the Medal of Honor decades after she had had it taken away. After the war, she began to advocate for women's rights, including dress reform. She was the perfect person for it. After all, she had worn pants under her wedding dress. She taught school in pants. She attended medical school in them, even with her colleagues disapproving. Her family had been supportive of her choice, but that was about it. One day, she was walking home from teaching and was chased by a neighboring farmer and a group of boys, throwing eggs and other things at her. I just so admire her confidence, even as people made fun of her and patients gawked. She stood her ground and did what she wanted. Eggs and teasing were one thing, but in 1870, she was actually arrested in New Orleans for dressing like a man. She responded back with, I don't wear men's clothes. I wear my own clothes. She believed that a woman's dress should protect the person and allow freedom of motion and circulation and not make the wearer a slave to it. 
Being someone who lives in yoga pants, I can't imagine being forced to wear a dress, let alone corsets and bustles. Thank goodness times have changed, and in part because of ladies like Mary Edwards Walker. She also tried to register to vote in 1871, and we know that she was denied. Still, I love the story of Mary Edwards Walker taking on something so trivial, yet at the same time, so important. Another brave young woman was Claudia Rugarini, actually named Marissa, but under Mussolini's dictatorship, it was too dangerous to use her real name. Claudia was born in Milan in 1922 to a poor immigrant family. Her mother was a masseuse with an extremely admirable work ethic. Her maternal grandmother was a foundling. After I read that, I had to look it up. And basically, she was just left as a baby, so they don't know anything about her history. Between these two women, survival likely was in their blood. When Claudia was just 12 years old, she witnessed her father, a member of the Italian Communist Party, being beaten to death in front of their house by the fascist patrol. It most definitely stayed with her, and she eventually followed in her father's footsteps when she was at the university, surrounding herself with like-minded young people, artists, writers, journalists, architects, painters, sculptors, and poets. The group reminded each other to never give up hope and continue fighting for the resistance. Secretly, they would meet after their classes at the university and share their newspapers. At the time, you couldn't read certain books, watch certain movies, vote, or even express your opinion. So just having illegal material like a newspaper was dangerous. The partisans decided the best way to spread their message was through their own newspaper, which would be extremely dangerous with Mussolini's police everywhere. Claudia cycled around delivering their papers from one location to another for nearly two years. Witnessing the murder of her father, I'm sure, kept her fighting for the cause. Her rebellious spirit, though, was likely ignited even earlier when she was in kindergarten. They discovered she was left-handed, and the teachers forced her to correct it because they thought it was unacceptable. I admire that she used that spark to fight Mussolini's fascism. It was another situation where she was at a loss with how to help. The enormity must have been daunting. Still, she figured out a way in a small but incredibly courageous way to help. Without people like Claudia, who knows how much longer Mussolini's reign would have lasted. Claudia took huge risks passing this underground press distribution. She helped deliver weapons. They also stole valuable anti-fascist intelligence from the prison of San Vittori. I so admire that this young lady was willing to risk herself. I mean, she if she was discovered, they would torture her. She would most likely be killed. But it was people like this, little pieces working together, that would eventually take down Mussolini's regime. Finally, there was Nancy Wake, who was at the top of the Gestapo's most wanted list at one point. I think Nancy was just born with a bit of an edge. She left Australia at just 16, planning to be a nurse. She inherited a little money from her aunt, she found herself in Europe, and eventually, landing in France, she was able to convince a newspaper to hire her. Her ability to persuade people likely helped her be such a successful spy later on. In the 30s, she was working for the Hearst newspaper as a European correspondent. Little did she know that this job would eventually help during the war as she learned to speak French like locals and became extremely familiar with the country. She also witnessed the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi movement. At one point, she was in Versailles and was horrified to see Jews tied to a wheel and being whipped by German police. 
She knew that if she ever found a way, she wanted to help fight the evils of the Nazis. Nancy joined the French resistance. She was living with her husband, Henri Fioca, a French industrialist, when France fell to Germany in 1940. Wake became a courier for the Pat O'Leary Escape Network, led by Ian Garrow and later Albert Gurie. Albert Gurie was actually from the Belgium resistance, and his pseudonym was Pat O'Leary, which had been a pre-war Canadian friend. With the help of these underground networks, 7,000 military servicemen safely made it out of occupied territory. The O'Leary line alone helped 600 men escape France into Spain and back to Britain. The group would help feed, clothe, hide them in cellars, attics, and find people's homes to tuck them away. Basically, Nancy and the resistance fighters helped Allied airmen evade capture by the Germans and escape to neutral Spain. Nancy could get out of pretty much anything, just like how she had convinced the newspaper to hire her without any experience. She was able to elude the Germans. She even helped get a prisoner a German uniform to help him escape. I think she was a successful spy because she was a woman. She'd say a little powder and a little drink on the way, and I'd pass the German post with a wink and say, do you want to search me? Flirtatious and gutsy for sure, but it apparently worked. She eluded the Germans so often that they called her the White Mouse. In 1942, she decided that it was time to flee France. It was just too dangerous. Her husband, Henri, stayed behind. With them both leaving, it would raise suspicion. Henri was planning to follow her shortly after, but was captured and tortured as they tried to get information about Wake's whereabouts. They were certain he was married to the White Mouse, but he refused to break and was executed. As she was trying to escape France, she was picked up with a trainload of people and arrested in Toulouse. She had false papers and explained that she had false papers because she was a mistress and was trying to hide her infidelity from her husband. When Albert Gurry, the head of the O'Leary line, arrived and convinced them it was true, she was released. She was able to cross the Pyrenees to Spain and had no idea her husband had been killed until the end of the war. At one point, she parachuted into France to help train and organize resistance fighters and organize supply drops in preparation for D-Day. This woman parachuted with civilian clothes, including silk stockings and high heels. Over the top of that, she had a camel coat, webbing harness, and a helmet. If it wasn't such a serious situation, I might giggle at that sight. In Britain, Wake joined the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, and was trained in several programs. Vera Atkins recalled her as a real Australian bombshell, tremendous vitality, flashing eyes. Everything she did, she did well. Training reports record that she was a very good and fast shot and possessed excellent fieldcraft. I had to look up what fieldcraft was because I didn't know that either. And it's, since I didn't know what fieldcraft was, it's living, traveling, or making military or scientific observations in the field, especially while remaining undetected. She was also noted to put them into shame by her cheerful spirit and strength of character. She was confident in both her appearance and her skills, which I admire. She said her proudest achievement was riding 400 kilometers or 300 miles in three days to retrieve replacement codes for their radios in order to remain in contact with London. Their operation had been compromised, and their previous radio had been left behind. With the Germans offering rewards or torturing people, doing whatever they could for information related to the resistance, I can't even imagine how scary it must have been. Nancy had a good sense of people, but I can't, for me, I wouldn't trust anyone. 
She volunteered to cycle for the codes, thinking she would be the best option to slip through checkpoints under the radar, and she was right. I would have been a nervous mess. I know I'd be a dead giveaway right away. It was just so impressive that she could remain so calm and collected and slip by even slip by, even though there was a hefty reward for her capture. I admire this gutsy woman willing to put her life on the line over and over again. She was that opposed to Hitler and his Nazi regime. She was an extremely decorated war hero. Eventually, she had to sell her medals for living expenses. But I was happy to read that Prince Charles made sure she was taken care of until her death at 98. I have a lot more rebel girls to get through, and it makes me so happy that my son knows me well enough to pick out such a perfect gift for me. I hadn't even heard of Mary Edwards Walker, Claudia Rugurini, or Nancy Wake, war heroes and women not afraid to follow their north. I want a little more of that spunk, that feistiness, but most importantly, I want to believe so strongly in my convictions that I'm not going to let anything stand in my way. These ladies knew the difference between right and wrong and stood their ground through teasing, heartache, and threats. I hope history books start including more of these heroines. It would inspire people to use their voice and speak up for what's right. And we definitely need more of that these days. Stronger than fear is the desire to fight for freedom. Claudia Rugurini. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.